With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Hey there, it's Lars. Thanks for checking out the Lars Larson podcasting experience and have a fantastic day. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, you can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit iraadvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's iraadvantage.com. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of deadly drugs, including very lethal fentanyl, are flooding across the now open and totally porous southern border. That is President Donald Trump from his announcement last night of his run for re-election in 2024. And this is the Lars Larson Show. Yeah, I'm going to have more to say about Donald Trump's announcement. And I think it's good news for America. And America could use some good news right now. But I wanted to focus in on that one comment he made because he laid out a whole bunch of different policies. But how many of them are more important than stopping the flow of illegal drugs across a border that is now currently killing well over 100,000 Americans every single year? Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you on board. And if you want to join some honestly provocative talk, I'm glad to have you in the conversation. Just dial me up at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. We've got a Twitter poll for you to vote on. I'll tell you more about that later, but you can find it at Lars Larson Show on Twitter, if you don't mind Twitter. And if you don't like Twitter, go to my website website. It's LarsLarson.com. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states now for almost 23 years with honestly provocative talk. But when I watched the announcement by Donald Trump last night, I thought this is going to be great. It's going to be tough. You know that everybody is going to come out of the woodwork to attack him. But let's talk about that one thing he mentioned, which the current president of the United States, Joseph R. Biden, is avoiding like the plague. 
He's got a gigantic mess on his southern border, except it's not just affecting the southern border. The fact that Joe Biden declared open borders, that he told his secretary of Homeland Security, Mayorkas, to lie to the Congress under oath and declare to them that the border is secure, even while we have literally tons and tons of illegal drugs that are flooding across the border. I got to thinking about that when I saw this story today. And it comes out of Snohomish County, Washington, where the sheriff's office had to respond to probably one of their worst nightmares. A two-year-old boy dead because of illegal drugs. And I can tell you to a fair certainty, I'm no detective, but I can tell you, I know where the fentanyl that killed this little boy came from. It came from China. Now, China makes most of that fentanyl, and it comes into not our country, but into Mexico. Because the Chinese know and the Mexican drug cartels know that the best way to get illegal drugs into America and make literally billions of dollars, even if it kills a lot of people, including two-year-old boys, is across that wide open border. And Joe Biden even sat down with the president, or king for life, as Donald Trump called him last night, uh, of China, Xi. And do you think he brought up our wide open southern border? No. Do you think he brought it up with the Chinese? By the way, you're sending poison into our country and we're losing over 100,000 people every year, including little two-year-old boys. No, he didn't bring that up either. Why would he? Joe Biden is owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Chinese communists. They paid a lot of money through his son to buy the influence with the Biden crime family, and they've got it now. And this little boy is one of the victims. And I guess I wonder from time to time how many people, not just adult drug addicts, but little kids, how many little kids do we have to see carried away in a coffin, carried away on a stretcher in a body bag to be given an autopsy, which hasn't happened yet in Snohomish County, but it will. And they're fairly certain they believe this little boy died because of fentanyl. Now you're saying, well, how did that little two-year-old boy, how did he get a hold of fentanyl? That's yet to be determined either. But here's what the story says. Uh, sheriff's deputies responded to parents, um, a mother, who said, my little boy is unresponsive. I can't wake him up. So the sheriff's deputies arrived on Friday night and into Saturday morning. They gave the little boy all the life-saving they could. They called paramedics. The paramedics showed up, and the little boy was dead. He will be, well, he will have an autopsy and we'll find out his formal, uh, you know, cause of death from the medical examiner. But here's what our friends at Como, one of our affiliate stations, say investigators found drug paraphernalia in the apartment where the mother and the little boy and her father live. Suspected heroin, suspected fentanyl. The mother's car was also impounded as evidence. And the sheriff's office says that little boy's death is likely due to fentanyl exposure. Now, what do I hope? <clears throat> I hope that whoever let this little boy have access to fentanyl, and it probably wasn't deliberate. Little kids love to stick things in their mouths, and that happens. But if you're a drug addict and you leave your drugs somewhere where a little boy can put a pill in his mouth, Pills that cost as little as a dollar a piece when they're sold by the Mexican drug cartels, by the literally hundreds of thousands or even millions in the United States of America. That's how this little boy ended up with fentanyl in him, it seems almost certain at this point. And by the way, the young mother, 
the Kirkland mother, this mother who moved in with her father into an apartment where he was staying, he said his grandson would not wake up. And he, he woke up in the middle of the night because he heard his daughter trying to wake up the little boy. And, uh, and then he said this, it's just heartbreaking that we need to keep everything out of reach of children, our medication. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I can imagine a number of different meanings for that. But I want you to think about the fact that we have decided as a society that hard drug use is okay. We've pseudo-legalized it in too many places in the entire country. We have pseudo-legalized illegal entry into the United States. We have pseudo-legalized bringing tons of drugs into America and selling them at prices that are so low that everybody who wants to get high can go out and get high. And occasionally, you're going to end up with some of those pills on the floor in an apartment with a little boy or a little girl, and that child is either going to get very, very sick, and maybe his or her life will be saved, or maybe that little boy or girl will die, like this little boy did. Two years old, not even old enough to know what was going on. And who brought those drugs into the apartment? As far as I'm concerned, if the police can determine who brought the drugs into the apartment and had them available so the little boy could take them by accident, assuming that he wasn't given them deliberately, we have no evidence of that, I want that person charged. I want the person charged with homicide, negligent homicide at the very least. And then I'd like the police to track down the people who sold those drugs to the person who made them available in whatever way to that two-year-old boy. And I'd like to see that person put on trial under the land bias laws to say, you've caused the death of a human being. You're going to be going to prison. Now, do I have any great faith right now that the current judicial system, a combination of the cops, the sheriff's departments, the prosecutors, the courts, and governors, do I think they're going to actually go after this? No, I don't. I don't think they care. I really don't. I see no evidence that they care to stop this problem. And it's going to take more lives. The only question is, how many lives will it take before Americans stand up and say, no more? Glad to be with you on a Wednesday. Always glad to get your calls. The Northwest Nonsense is coming up next on the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. That makes a lot of sense, a lot of nonsense. Right, you're bloody well right. You know you got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. I see a train wreck coming in Oregon between citizen civil rights and a new voter approved law that nobody in the world seems to be ready for not the governor not the state police not the local police nobody is ready for it voters narrowly approved measure 114 after most of the media told them it was just a requirement to have a permit to buy a gun and it's all about safety and stopping criminals well that's a lie Measure 114 bans the sale of all guns starting January 15th when the new law goes into effect. And I warned you, this is what it was going to be. It was going to be an effective ban on all sales until and unless law enforcement gets its act together. Well, that's because the Oregon State Police admit they have no permit system. And the classes required to be taken before you get the permit, that doesn't exist either. 
and the $40 million to run the permit system for just the first year, yeah, does not exist right now. Might, might not, no guarantees. Sponsors of Measure 114 claim the police will just put the law on hold until they're ready. You know, the last time I read the Oregon Constitution, I couldn't find the part where it says a police agency can just say, hey, that law is coming at a really inconvenient time. We don't know what to do with it, and we're not ready, so we're just going to put it on hold for now. State police already today face a backlog of 12 1,500 people who are waiting for background checks before the deadline slams down on law-abiding buyers. A few weeks ago, that number was only 3,000. So 3,000 weeks ago, 12,500 today. So we have a U.S. constitutional right to keep and bear arms. And we have a law that absolutely forbids the ability to buy a gun. And a state and local government bureaucracy that admits it doesn't have the first clue how to stop that collision. Ah, just another day in a state run by Democrats. And then Barry wrote in. Now, I get a certain number of naysayer calls on the show, and I'm glad for them. I also get some naysayer emails, and this one would fit into that category. Hey, Lars, it seems like you've forgotten that the majority rule in our society, not the minority, though you and associated other gun enthusiasts don't like 114, the majority have spoken. How about closing your yap on the subject and moving on to something else? The majority approved 114 because we wanted, period. Well, Barry, I appreciate your invitation to give up my First Amendment rights, and I will politely decline that invitation. On Twitter, Patty Reed writes in, Lars, I just saw the Senate voted McConnell back in before Georgia and Alaska were even called. That is the definition of insanity. Why do we keep expecting different results when we continue to do the same things? Are the Republicans completely hopeless? Well, not completely, but they are certainly making some bad moves in both the House and the Senate. And our question of the day, Steve writes in, Lars, don't we have a separation of church and state? If so, why can that church interfere in state constitutional rights? Mark Knudsen, the chief petitioner for Measure 114 and a pastor at Augustana Lutheran Church, created a horrible ballot measure that interferes with constitutional rights. Isn't it time to tell them when and where they can practice their religion? Better yet, start taxing them, signed Steve. Well, Steve actually raises an interesting point. Most churches have tax-exempt status, but to get that tax-exempt status, they have to agree to stay out of politics to a large degree. That is, they can't go out and support candidates or ballot measures. Otherwise, everybody running for office would just go start a church and say, hey, donate to my church. It's the church of Trump for president, except that that's not legal. So churches have special tax status. They also have tax status they could lose. And consider this. I'm going to give uh, today's Daily Grill, and I'll give you the details on that. Let's do today's Daily Grill right now. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. The way has been paved by trademark paving. Just pave it. Serving Southwest Washington. I'm going to give today's Daily Grill to a man who has been invited on this show so many times, has never agreed to come on and answer even a single question. Pastor Mark Knudsen of Augustana Lutheran Church. Now, we've called him for months asking him to come on and explain what Measure 114 does and how he would work out some of the problems that are now starting to occur to people who haven't been following this. 
Well, I got this email from uh, Carl in Salem, who's listening on our Radio Northwest Network. He said, Lars, looking at the chief proponent of the measure, P- uh, Priest Knutson, or Pastor Knutson, has been quoted in numerous articles about this measure. As the head priest for the Augustana Lutheran Church in Southeast Portland, he drives the direction of the church. He is the face of the church. As a 501c3 organization, that's the tax status, by the way, to keep their tax-exempt status, the church is required by law to not promote a stance on a candidate, the legislature, or a ballot measure. The left will say that Priest Knudsen was just acting on his own and not acting on behalf of the church. However, look at the church's readily available newsletters found on the website. Priest Knudsen was pushing for ballot measure 114 to be passed back in October, well before the election. That's because he's one of the chief petitioners. It would be amazing to see this church lose its coveted 501c3 status so the public could see the inflows and the outflows of cash to see if there are any major recent cash donations. However, that would require the Attorney General to get involved, Ellen Rosenblum, hardcore Democrat, and I'm not holding my breath. Thanks for all you do. Signed, Carl. Now, today's best email of the day, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring, and the MEI Group is paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. TheMEIGroup.com. This comes in from Taylor, who says, Lars, I'm a garbage man, and I work in the Portland Metro. Just this morning, I was dumping a can and some debris fell out. When I got down to pick it up, I noticed about five or six unopened ballots in the trash. My point of the email is to inform your listeners how important it is to get out and vote. It's much easier to throw them away than fill them out, but it's important in our civic duty. It's upsetting to say the least because of how close the midterm race was. Perhaps if more people voted, we wouldn't be relying on Tina Kotek to get things done for us. I felt we had so much momentum and so much potential. Well, that's my PSA for the day today. Thanks for everything you do. Signed, Taylor. Taylor, thank you very much for that. To your calls now. Let's start with Jason. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hi, Lars. I had a question. Is there a potential conflict of interest between the general public that shops at the Kroger Corporation or Fred Meyer? Uh, When you go there to buy cough syrup, champagne, any kind of alcoholic beverage, they want to scan your ID with a scanner. Yeah, they do. And my question is, is, I mean, what if there's some type of infiltration or security breach within Fred Meyer or Kroger that then turns all this information into public information about who's buying beer, what they're doing, how they're doing it? Because we're close, I'm going to give you a quick answer. I've reached out to Kroger. I said, do you keep any of that data? And they said, no, we're scanning because we kept... We're worried about getting fined by the Oregon Liquor Commission uh, for selling to underage people. We keep none of the data. So I only have Kroger's representation that they keep none of the data ever at any time. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Wednesday. It's a week and a day after the election, and we're not even done counting around many parts of Oregon or Washington or the rest of the country. But we know that the next governor of Oregon at this point appears to be Tina Kotek, and that means we have to figure out what exactly is she going to do and how much different is it going to be than what Kate Brown has delivered over the last half dozen years. Nigel Jake was the Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter at Willamette Week, joins me now. You can find the stories he writes at wweek.com. Nigel, welcome back. Thanks, Lars. 
So Tina Kotek has kind of laid down an, an outline, and, and while, while I'm, we covered it, I, I noticed that one of her first promises is to try to go out and clean up the massive homeless problem that infects not just the biggest cities, but infects some of the smaller cities as well. But she says she's not going to get on top of it entirely until 2025. No, I, I think uh, there are a bunch of different parts of her plan. I think that she has said that she will declare a homeless state of emergency immediately and start doing things differently as it relates to the homeless uh, issue immediately. I think it's going to, she's pretty clear that it's going to take a long time to build enough housing uh, and even build enough shelters to get all the people who are on the street off the street. Well, in fact, hasn't it been the case that over the last decade, as they've built more housing and more shelter and more beds and everything else, we just get more homeless? Uh, We do. There's no question there are more homeless people on the streets of Oregon today than there were 10 years ago. But, you know, we still have an enormous housing deficit. Uh, We haven't built enough housing in this state. We keep falling further behind. Um, You you know, there's no question about that. I think you and I have talked about this before, and I I think I may fundamentally disagree with you that I don't think the lack of apartment units at twelve hundred or fifteen hundred bucks a month is going to solve the problems of the people who are living on the street taking drugs because I don't think they're they're not even in in anywhere near being able to actually access any of that housing uh, unless somebody just gives them a free place to live, which is what it sounds like Tina Kotek and and Ted Wheeler's plan is to do. Well, I, I think that what we ought to look for from Kotech and from Wheeler is to say, okay, where are we today? Things are a, a mess in Portland and Salem and Eugene and every town in the city. If you just look at Portland and say, where are we today? Can you make things demonstrably, materially better over the next year or two? I, I mean, I think that's what we ought to really be asking. Can, can you make things better? Because they, I think they that, are worse than they were 10 years ago. They are worse now than they were three years ago. The, I, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it is say, where are we now? Where are you promising to put us? And are you going to make things demonstrably better? The problem is, is that isn't every single one of the approaches she's, she's saying, we're going to build more housing. We're going to, we're going to go out and, and try to get people off the streets and clean up the trash. Um, this is what all of the government agencies that have worked on this, going back to about 1980, have been doing for the last 40 years. And, and it hasn't changed well, the situation, has it? Let me, be, let me give you one, one specific that I think sure. we can try and uh, collectively hold the governor accountable for. And that's that part of her plan is to say, okay, we're spending a tremendous amount of money right now keeping people housed who are already housed. It's sort of the rent assistance program. It's very expensive. It doesn't make a visible difference. So her plan is to spend less money on that and more money going out with people on the streets saying, okay, let's find all the veterans, let's find all the children, let's find all the seniors, let's find all the families, because there are funding streams, especially for people like veterans and children. There are existing funding streams we can connect them to. They are visibly homeless. We get them off the streets. So her focus there is to... Stop spending money on stuff that's invisible and spend money on stuff that is visible and that will make a tangible, immediate difference. And, you know, that's what she said she wants to do. And I think that part of the frustration that voters expressed in this election was that 
we are spending a tremendous amount of money right now, and things are getting demonstrably, visibly worse, not better. You know, the the funny thing about that, though, is, Nigel, they, the, I think it's Multnomah County and Portland together are spending about a quarter of a billion dollars this year. And Multnomah County said, we're going we're gonna to get this many people off the streets. And I did the math. It's like $94,000 for every person they promised to get off the streets, which is a gargantuan amount of money. The average family would love to have $94,000 uh, applied to their life, but it's not. So if you say, we're going to identify the vets and get them access to the stream of money. Now, the money goes to the vet. If the vet is drug addicted and he has a stream of money, then my question would be, is he going to spend it on housing or is he going to spend it on his addiction? And I think I know the answer to that one. Now, the families may be a different uh, question. Unaccompanied young, young adults, I don't know what that is. Unaccompanied by who? They're young adults. Uh, and people 65 and older, she's kind of nibbled away at the edges and says by 2025, we'll end unsheltered homelessness for veterans, families with kids, unaccompanied young adults, and people 65 and older. Those are all the edges. What's in the? What about the big fat middle that is most of the problem? People who aren't kids, people who aren't families, people who aren't veterans, and people who aren't north of sixty-five. What, what about those people? Does that come in twenty-six or twenty-seven or twenty-eight? Look, you, you and I know, Lars. You've lived in the city longer than I have, but I've lived here a long time. There were homeless people when I arrived in Portland in uh, twenty-five years ago. There were a lot of homeless people then. You're never going to despite what sometimes the starry-eyed government folks tell us, you're never going to end homelessness. Can you make it demonstrably, visibly better? I mean, if she were able to accomplish that goal of getting those groups off the street by 2025, things would look a lot different. Um, I, I think I am, and I think a lot of voters are really desperate for visible, tangible change. And if that's what it takes to get it started, I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, I think we still obviously have to watch closely and hold her accountable. But I think that she's saying, I'll do things differently, and I'll make this change hold me accountable. And I think that's a fair request. I, I think that's fair, too. Let's move on. She says she'll expand access to mental health and addiction treatment. Well, hold on. Didn't Measure 110 allocate almost a third of a billion dollars to that? How much is she going to expand it beyond that? Because they put a third of a billion in, and they couldn't even spend the money. So you have two different pots of money that are really going to start flowing in a big way. You have a half a billion dollars of new money for mental health services that the legislature allocated last year. You have a separate pot that you just mentioned of $300 million for addiction services that comes off of Measure 110. That that money is starting to flow, hasn't really arrived yet. So what her what she says she will do is is try and have those both of those pots of money spent in a more systemic, cohesive fashion. So an example would be that there are a lot of nonprofits uh, up and down the valley all over the state that provide various parts of services, either for mental health or for substance abuse disorder. And you'll have people that get out of rehab, but there's no place for them to go. Or you'll have people that get out of the state hospital in Salem, but there's no place for them to go. So the thing that she is promising to do, which would be good if she can actually do it, is to say, instead of spending a whole bunch of money putting somebody through rehab and then just discharging them to the street in Old Town or the streets of Salem and saying, okay, good luck, you're on your own, drugs are basically plentiful and free, having uh, the kind of coordinated care that we've sought to have in, in primary health where we said, you know, okay, if a guy goes to an emergency room 100 times a year, could we hook him up with a general practitioner so he only went five times a year or ten times a year? So 
it's boring and it sounds difficult, but it's important, and that's to try and say, let's spend this money smartly and efficiently instead of just kind of throwing it willy-nilly as we have done in the past. You can read the story you wrote at wweek.com, and next time around, Nigel, we should talk about how the biggest spending governor's race in history and the biggest spender was Tina Kotek, and she says she now, now that she's governor, wants to get the big money out of politics. Back in just a moment, it's a Wednesday. Your calls are welcome, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you live on the Radio Northwest Network and serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk for almost 23 years now. Our Twitter poll today, will Governor Tina Kotek be better, worse, or about the same as accidental Governor Kate Brown has been? For the last six years, we've given you all three options. I would say she's going to be worse. She is going to be Kate Brown 2.0 on steroids. And if you thought Kate Brown was bad, Tina Kotek is going to make that pale by comparison. Today's Twitter poll can be found at Lars Larson Show. And it's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Yesterday, I asked you, Uh, After all the changes that have been made about vaccine mandates, should government workers who were fired for not getting the jab get their jobs back? In Oregon, in Washington, in Idaho, uh, I actually based the question on the new lawsuit by the former coach at Wazoo, uh, Nick Roloff. And he's brought a lawsuit against the state saying, you fired me for not taking the jab. Uh, You're going to have to pay me. I think that every other government worker should get his or her job back, and they should get back pay as well. On that note, let's go to Stephen. Hey, Stephen, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, I just wanted to touch on the the homeless crisis. You guys were talking about them having no place to go when they get out of treatment or whatnot. That's Uh, what Nigel said, yeah. Yeah, Have they're you heard of Oxford House. Yes, and and what they're going to tell you is, well, we have thousands of people, and there aren't enough spaces. I don't buy it, but but I think the biggest problem is how do you get them to take the treatment? Because we're kind of getting ahead of the game if we say, well, once they're done uh, kicking methamphetamine or kicking fentanyl or heroin or whatever, but who's doing that right now? <clears throat> Almost nobody is going into treatment at this point. Measure 110 effectively legalized hard drugs in Oregon. And all they said was, if you're arrested by the police or you're ta- not arrested, if you're tagged for carrying a use quantity, which is a large quantity of heroin or meth or fentanyl or anything else, uh, they have to recommend that you call and talk to somebody on, on the phone about getting into treatment. And they found out that all of last year, all of 21, nobody went into treatment. So, You have hundreds of millions of dollars allocated for treatment. You have thousands of people who are actually getting written a ticket, which they didn't have to pay if they made the phone call. And they make the phone call and say, hey, thanks for the offer of treatment. Not interested. So before we ever get to the point of saying, how do you house the post-treatment addict? How do you get the addict to kick the drugs to begin with? You can't force somebody. I'm speaking from experience. It has to be their choice. But what they did do with the 110 was take away the nudge from the judge. That's what yep. we call it. We call it in the in the uh, rooms of Narcotics Anonymous is the nudge from the judge. They give you the option of treatment or jail, and most people will take treatment. And sometimes it takes five or six times of treatment before they even wake up to the fact that uh, there is a better life out there than using. 
Absolutely right. And, Stephen, I've heard that from addicts. I've heard it from judges. And the minute they legalized it and said, you don't have to, the judge can't give you the nudge anymore because you're no longer threatened with jail, a whole bunch of people who used to go into treatment don't go into treatment anymore. So, you know, if you're addicted to drugs and the city says, well, we'll give you a free place to live and you can keep on taking the drugs, or we found a new stream of income for you, you're a vet and there are some resources available to you, where do you think those resources are going to go? I suspect they're going to go right into drugs. Well, you just—that's exactly right. Because I mean, that's called enabling, and and uh, the addict's not going to quit unless they hit rock bottom. And I'm speaking from experience with uh, ten years clean today. Well, con- so. today, today is your ten year anniversary. Well, Congratulations, the, good. Well, on the seventh, it was actually the seventh of this month, but I'm, well, still. I'm ten years clean and sober. I have my own place. I I've, I went from rock bottoms right back to you know having my job back and it's it's actually amazing it's a lot of hard work but uh, i don't i don't doubt it but steven i got to tell you something congratulations for you for beating this stuff let's go to henry in bellingham hey henry thanks for listening on kgmi and the radio northwest network what's on your mind hey lars um i think that you owe joe kent and the republican voters of the united states of america a public apology for costing them that election and How did out- I cost them the election? Well, two ways. Number one, there was there was a candidate, Jamie Herrera Butler, who was a lock for that re-election. I don't think um, so. You actively okay. campaigned against her. So that's yes, the first I did. One. Number two, uh, Joe Kent himself was apparently leading in the polls until some information came up regarding his no-show job. You promised to clear that up on the air, um, which you never did. In fact, Henry, hold you didn't on, hold, it Henry. When you talk Henry, to you're so lying. That, therefore, you you're you're lying, and I don't like being lied about, Henry. If you want, send you me an email. Hold up. on, I interviewed Joe Kent about that job. He explained what the job was on the air before the election. And if you don't believe me, I've got a SoundCloud recording of it. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to ask my executive producer, Donovan, to put that back up at the top. If you didn't bother to hear it, Henry, that's not my problem. But don't say that we never addressed that. We addressed it head on, got an explanation. He worked for a tech company that does work in the 5G area. Now, you can that can be controversial too, but point is, he was drawing the money And the fact that you didn't research it well, the fact that you didn't listen to the show, you didn't bother to look at the website and listen to the 10-minute interview we did on that very subject, Henry, that ain't my problem. Your lack of knowledge is not my problem. I do my best to spread information, but you only get it if you've got ears to hear and eyes to see. And you've got the Lars Larson Show. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's 
that's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I've got a question for you, and I want to know whether or not you think the rule of law still applies in Oregon and Washington. And the reason I ask that, I quote John Adams all the time. Uh, When he was a lawyer, uh, he became one of America's presidents, a great president by my estimation. But he said, America is a nation of laws, not a nation of men. And what he meant by that is that we are all held to the laws, that if you live in a country unlike America, Uh, a country like China, a country like Russia, a country like Cuba, a country like Venezuela. It matters who you knows, who you know. If you happen to be in in the good favor of the folks who are running things, whether it's the president or the dictator or whoever's running things, if you're on their good side, you can do no wrong. On the other hand, if you're on their bad side, it may be that you find yourself locked up for charges that are bogus all day long. So America is supposed to, in theory, this is the goal we reach for. We don't always get there, but that's the goal we reach for, that every single person in this country is equal in the eyes of the law. Now, what I'm going to tell you about is a specific example. It involves a relatively minor dust-up between two characters. One of them, I happen to know, he's a top-flight journalist by the name of Andy No. And we've had him on the show for years. We began having him on, and he was still just a grad student. But today, Andy No writes for the Post Millennial. I don't have him on the air with me today, but he's always invited. Now, Andy has come under physical attack uh, from the Antifa and BLM that he has written so many stories about. He has revealed so many things about those two groups. And the end result is he's rather a slight individual. Uh, he's Asian. He's gay. He's relatively small. I mean, I've got a picture of him. I'm not a big guy, and he looks small compared to me because he's been in my studio. And and we've talked to him. I've had a great pleasure of talking to him many times. So he's come under physical attack before. One of the attacks, not this one, but one of the attacks was so violent that his doctors told him, you have a, a brain bleed, and you may in fact suffer from the after effects of that brain bleed for the rest of your life that he came very close to being killed. Now, in this case, this involves a different kind of dust-up. And they just finished a trial and found the guy who attacked Andy No, who stole his cell phone because he didn't like the fact that Andy No was shooting pictures with his cell phone, which Andy No had a right to do. And the dispute, as it's described, took place in a gymnasium. And both of the members... Uh, Both of the men are members of the gym. One is John Hacker. The other one is Andy No, who's described by the Daily Dead Fish Rapper as the right-wing author Andy No. Andy's written books. He's written, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of news stories. And he's really a good journalist. So what happened? Well, here's what happened. Um, The judge decided that while it was true that John Hacker assaulted Andy No, and it was true that John Hacker first tried to destroy his cell phone and then took his cell phone that he wasn't guilty of theft because he had no criminal intent now this is how bizarre it gets here's what happened judge eric dolan 
said he was struck by the similar ways in which the men behave on social media. They share photos and videos, and they identify people that they consider dangerous. He said he does not condone what Hacker did, but he said he couldn't find him guilty because Hacker's behavior did not show criminal intent beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, I called up a friend of mine, Josh Marquis, the former DA, uh, because I get, you know, I, I call Josh with legal questions, say, can you be found not guilty when you, you've taken somebody's stuff, in this case, a cell phone, and you knew you took it, you didn't take it by accident. It's not like you picked up your coat and the cell phone happened to be inside the coat and you didn't realize it. This guy knowingly took somebody else's stuff. And the, the end result of this is that Josh said, yep, the judge can do this. But at this point, what you've got is a situation where if you are on the right side of politics in the Pacific Northwest, you may find yourself found guilty of crimes that people on the left, the BLM, Antifa, will not be found guilty of for the same kind of behavior. On the other hand, if you are the victim of a crime, a judge may decide, well, the person that committed the crime against you isn't really guilty. And politics, I believe, with all due respect to Judge Dolan, I think politics is playing a huge part of this. So here's what happened. These two, these two guys, Andy No, and I, I'll admit we have a dog in the fight because I like Andy No and I like his journalism. I don't know John Hacker. But Andy No is going down to the gymnasium where he's a member. And Hacker, this guy, this jerk, says he became angry when he saw Andy No walking up the stairs of the 24-hour fitness club in Hollywood, in Hollywood in, in Portland. And Hacker said he was resentful and irritated toward Andy No, who he believed had lied about May Day events in what he described as an impulse decision. So in other words, he doesn't like the things that Andy No believes in or the things that he says. Now, in America, you can engage in whatever free speech you want to engage in. And if somebody says, hey, I don't like the stuff that guy says, like me, does that give you leave to physically assault them? Well, what he did was he took a water bottle and dumped its contents on Andy No's head. Now, I'll tell you, as a piece of context, Andy No has been physically attacked before, had the brain bleed, and at times people have so thrown chemicals and other substances on him. With that context, you're walking into the gymnasium, you're there to work out, and somebody dumps a bottle of liquid. You don't know what's in the liquid. You don't know what's going to do to you. Does Andy No strike back and assault Mr. Hacker? No, he doesn't. And Hacker goes up to confront him, and he testifies to all this. So you're, you're a judge who's looking at this case. You've got one guy who gets bent out of shape because he doesn't like somebody else for what they say and what they believe. That, and he says, I'm going to attack that guy. I'm going to dump water on him. I'm going to run up, and I'm going to physically confront him. What did Andy No do? He pulled out his cell phone, and he began to roll, a vi roll video, record video on his cell phone because he said he thought this guy was going to put a beat down on him, and he wanted to document it because that's what people do these days. It's a sensible thing to do. Does he strike back? No. So what does Hacker do? Hacker says, give me the phone. Give me the phone. And Andy No says, no. So he grabs the phone from him. It falls to the floor. It cracks the case. And Andy No picks it up again, and Hacker takes it from him again and then leaves with the phone. So he commits theft. He commits an assault on Andy No. And what does a Multnomah County judge do? The judge says, 
oh, you didn't have any criminal intent in what you were doing. So you see somebody that you don't like because of the things they say and the things they believe in. You physically assault them once. Then you physically assault them a second time. Then you steal a piece of property. Most of us have cell phones that cost anywhere from $500 to $1,000. You take an expensive piece of personal property from the person and then you leave. And a judge finds you not guilty. Do you know what? The rule of law, as near as I can tell, does not apply in the Pacific Northwest anymore. And it all comes back to whether we're a nation of men or a nation of laws and whether or not your politics will get you equal treatment under the U.S. Constitution. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. That is Donald Trump. And last night at Mar-a-Lago, Florida, Donald Trump announced that, as expected, he will be seeking the Republican nomination to run for president in 2024. And, of course, the liberal mainstream media went nuts. Liberals in America went nuts. And, of course, the establishment Republican swamp went nuts as well. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I want to share a few things that Donald Trump had to say last night as he kicked off his bid to be Re-elected to the presidency in 2024. But first, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll at LarsLarsonShow and at LarsLarson.com. And welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network. We endeavor to serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Have done that for almost 23 years. Plan to do it for at least another 20 years heading into the future, if God is willing. Now, about what Donald Trump did. We all expected that Donald Trump would announce that he is going to run for the presidency in 2024. And at this point, most of the polls I've seen show him between 50 and 60 percent favored at this point, about a year and a half out from the actual nominating conventions in the summer of 24, um, about 50 to 60 percent favor giving him the Republican nomination. Now, A year and a half is a long time in politics. But having said that, I think Donald Trump uh, engenders the kind of enthusiasm in Americans. And if you hear that enthusiasm in my voice, it's because I really believe he is the choice for president. And I I believe that back in December of uh, uh, 2019. I also believe that in uh, December of 2015. And that's why I endorsed him in the early part of 2016, the year that he was first elected. I held my endorsement until I went back to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is held every year. It's the biggest gathering of conservatives in America that happens every year. And the Democrats don't have anything like it. But as I said, the mainstream media is now just about blown a gasket over this. They can't believe it. They say, how dare he run for president? Uh, We wanted to make sure he could never run for president again. Even though I know for the political left, Donald Trump is their worst nightmare. For the media, Donald Trump is the the, the answer to all their dreams. Because when uh, Donald Trump was still president, CNN actually was doing reasonably well. As soon as he left the presidency, uh, CNN has begun to fail. They've been firing people left and right. But Donald Trump had a little bit of a different affect to him last night that I saw. 
I saw him give a speech. It was very sensible. And I've had some friends. In fact, I even had a call from a friend today who said, well, you know, I'd be in favor of him if he was just a little bit more uh, willing to say this is not about me. It's about the country. Well, he did say exactly that last night. And in fact, that's the message that I heard. And uh, because Donald Trump, uh, look, I understand anybody who is in politics has to have a fairly good-sized ego. You have to, because when you get into politics, you're going to be attacked from every single side. doesn't matter if you're to the right or to the left, a Republican or a Democrat, you're going to come under attack. And if you don't have the backbone and the, and the wherewithal to stand up to that kind of thing, well, if you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, uh, as Harry Truman said. But I want you to consider this. Donald Trump, could just sit back and say, okay, I've got the title of president for the rest of my life. I can sit at Mar-a-Lago. I can golf every day. I can just enjoy my life. Or I can go back and do some things for the American people. And that's exactly what I heard in the speech. Listen to Donald Trump talk about the campaign he plans to run. This will not be my campaign. This will be our campaign altogether. Because the only force strong enough to defeat the massive corruption we are up against is you, the American people. Now, he talks about the massive corruption. It's not just the elections. It is not at all. If you take a look at what's happening right now, we've got tens of billions of dollars going to a war in Ukraine we're not even directly involved in. We've got a major cryptocurrency company that is collapsing. It was the second biggest donor to the Democrat Party. And where were they laundering their money? In Ukraine. That's FTX. Um, Donald Trump laid out a plan, a set of issues that he plans to run on. This isn't just bombast. I know the media would love to just say, oh, he just he just talks big. Donald Trump talks about the things that people actually care about. He says he'd like to have term limits on everybody in Congress, and he suggests the only way to get it done, and he's right, legally, is to put it in as a constitutional amendment. Presidents are term limited. You can term limit Congress as well. I'd get behind that effort. He says he'd like to have a ban on lobbying after somebody has served in the Congress. Don't let them go off to K Street and start lobbying the Congress to make literally millions of dollars for having voted the right way while they're in the Congress. It sets up the wrong kinds of incentives. He laid out so many things, but he also did talk about restoring American trust in elections. Listen to this. I will immediately demand voter ID, same-day voting, and only paper ballots. Now, I want to tell you something. When he says only paper ballots, he pointed out that France had a national election. France is a much smaller country, but then again, any smaller country has fewer resources as well. France manages to do a national election in a single day on paper ballots with voter ID and no problem whatsoever. Trump is right. This can be done. But the biggest problem, the most existential threat to the United States is, of course, the crisis on the border that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the Democrat Congress have refused to do anything about. And Donald Trump talked about it last night. Unknown people, many of whom are entering for a very bad and sinister reason. And you know what that reason is. We will be paying a big price for this invasion into our country for years to come. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of deadly drugs, including very lethal fentanyl, are flooding across the now open and totally porous southern border. 
And he's right about that. And not just drugs. We've got human trafficking. We've got child sex trafficking coming across that border. And its biggest aider and abetter is the sniffer of children's hair himself, Joseph Biden. Joe Biden doesn't seem to give a damn that there are people coming across our border who are on the terrorist watch list, people coming across our border who are convicted criminals, people who are trafficking children, people who are trafficking drugs. But this is one of the things that I think is going to be the most popular. Donald Trump says no more mandates. Listen. We will abolish every Biden COVID mandate and rehire every patriot who was fired from our military with an apology and full back pay. Now, somebody tell me that that kind of campaign on those kinds of issues about a year and a half from now is not going to be wildly successful with anybody who is the least bit conservative and sensible in the United States of America. Your calls are welcome at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You've got the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to explore something about a company called FTX that has been in the news quite a bit just recently. Uh, the CEO, or I guess former CEO now, uh, went on the run, was captured by authorities in the Bahamas. He is either a crypto genius who managed to put together a company fairly quickly, only over the last couple of years, and was actually making a gigantic amount of money and then made a few missteps, and maybe his ego got in the way, uh, and it all fell apart, or he was running a major league Ponzi scheme. Now, uh, to get a, a view of this, I've invited my friend John Berlau on, who's Senior Fellow and Director of Finance Policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. John, welcome back. And what can you tell us about this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, as he's called in the crypto business? Is he a genius or is he just a dummy who lucked into some huge investments and then began stealing uh, his client's own money? Well, there's no doubt. I mean, he did, whether he's a genius or not, he did stupid things or else we wouldn't have been caught in this in this implosion this way. He he kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, he people thought it was cute when he went to uh, meetings in a T-shirt. Now it's not so so cute. But I am uh, more concerned with um, at, I am concerned. But at this point, I'm also very concerned with the uh with you know the Biden's SEC chair Gary Gensler, who was going after and harming legitimate entrepreneurs, putting uh, all these climate and ESG mandates um, uh, on these uh, on uh, legitimate oil and gas companies, as well as harming legitimate cryptos. While this guy was just you know the fire was raging there, and uh, I think there was it looked like you know there was certainly like uh, an overstatement of assets at the company of how much reserves they had that they found out when people tried to withdraw their money. So, you know, where was the SEC when it was trying to, uh, you know, make companies do how woke they were? And this company, you know, handing more than $10 billion in crypto exchanges was running wild. Yeah, and John, I've got the same concern, plus a concern that there seem to be some interesting political ties between SBF, the former CEO of FTX, who's now on the run, this Sam Bankman-Fried. He was giving millions of dollars. He was he actually ranked as the second biggest donor to the Democrat Party, uh, about $40 million in the last election cycle. And he had vowed at one point about a year ago, he said, I'll put a billion dollars into the 2024 presidential election cycle. And he was making gigantic promises. And you wonder, 
Where was he getting the money from? And was there a political motive to ignore what he was doing because he was such a major league donor? Uh, I guess only George Soros eclipsed the donations of Sam Bankman Freed. And is that another of the reasons that the federal government under Joe Biden uh, kind of ignored all the warning signs about FTX until it was too late? Yes, he certainly had this had this progressive veneer. And the funny thing also, and not too, not really funny, I mean, it would be comic if it weren't so damn trash. How about strange is, instead? Is the saying, but the, yeah. um, uh, that he was, you know, pushing, he said, I'm for more regulation. And he was pushing uh, regulations that his competitors said, you know, would, um, uh, you know, lead to a monopoly, would make him, you know, uh, you know, he was pushing regulations and apparently special exemptions, no action from the SEC at the same time. You know, he was having, you know, apparently lax controls on, you know, on how FTX was running. Well, and the other question, and let me throw this other element in, because this thing seems to have elements all over the place, that at one point, Sam Bankman-Fried said, I'm going to raise a bunch of money from Ukraine. So he establishes a relationship with the governor, government of Ukraine involving cryptocurrency and the National Bank of Ukraine. And apparently there was money flowing through there. And, John, I'd remind you, uh, Ukraine has tended to be over the last few years, number of years, uh, a money laundry for certain figures, including what I call the Biden crime family. I'm not asking you to describe them. You're a respectable person at Competitive Enterprise but I call them the Biden crime family, that Ukraine was a giant money laundry and where influence was bought and sold and, and everything else. Should I be suspicious about what was going on there? Well, yes, be suspicious. I mean, everything, I don't really have any direct knowledge of that, but everything should be under investigation. This is something the the House and hopefully the, the, the Senate will join them should be, you know, definitely under an area of oversight that. And where were the regulators that had clear jurisdiction as far as investor fraud to the companies, you know, the FTX company, even if not over the, you know, the crypto holders them, themselves, although, although they could have referred to other agencies. In the meantime, they were exceeding their authority, going after uh, one of YouTube's rivals that, you know, was not as woke as YouTube that used its own token called Library. And Gary Gensler actually bragged about that as a big win, even though on CNBC, even though no fraud was alleged, while letting something that was definitely a fraud concern, short sellers were warning about FTX, you know, fester. Well, and, and aren't those the kind of, of, of signals that the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, actually is supposed to be paying attention to? Watch for the signals. When you see the signals, if, if you think there's something suspicious going on, then go in and inquire and say, we need to see some backup for, for the kind of business you're doing. And if you can't back it up, we might have to shut you down. They do that to financial institutions all the time, don't they? Yes, and exchange handling, you know, more than $10 billion in securities run by um, 10 guys and, you know, sort of living in the same house in the, in the Bahamas. That's, I, actually, I'm not sure what Sam bankman fried is on the run. It's just he, he was based in the Bahamas, and that's where, that's where he is now. So we'll, we'll see what happens with, with that. But definitely, but the, 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 there's, there's a saying the late great uh, economist Walter Williams says what his, his – would quote his grandma says, "When you do what you're not, when you're doing what you're not supposed to be doing, you uh, you're lax on what you're supposed to be doing." They went after this, you know, telling, you know, mandating companies tell how green they are with ESG and the comment disclosure, which we argued exceeded their authority that they don't have that from Congress. And yet, here and wow, they apparently let you know what was a clear, what looks like you know maybe very well be investor fraud or or certainly accounting misstatements um, fester. 
that, you know, could, you know, cause contagion. Hopefully it won't in, in the economy. Well, and in fact, John, those kind of things, I just saw an announcement today from one of the 50 states saying we're going to take our entire state investment portfolio, which is pensions and, and state monies that are invested while they're sitting idle, and we're going to decarbon it. You know, we're going to take all fossil fuels out of it, all natural gas. And I thought, I don't think that's going to work to the benefit of the taxpayers. It sure sounds politically correct and woke and green and all that. But people should realize that when your governments start to play that game as well and say, we're willing to take losses as long as we look green, the losses are going to come at the expense of the taxpayers. Well, and expense of, at the, of the retirees, things like that, if the government is running, is, is running a pension or if it mandates that a pension fund does this. So, yes, it's, it's, it's fine if you're, as an individual investor, want to do it. But as the, the government, they have a fiduciary duty to taxpayers and the retirees under this system. Now, when something like this comes apart this way, do the investors have any chance of clawing back some of the money if they can identify where FTX actually sent the money? Yes, I mean, well, they do, but it can be a long process. I mean, there's a bankruptcy proceeding. The problem is that they would be considered like unsecured creditors, unlike with a brokerage or a bank. And that's part of what I think what I think reform or you know, I'd say modernizing regulation of crypto would be would be uh, to allow you know uh, allow banks and uh, and trusts to be able to hold crypto just like they hold they hold uh, jewelry. Also, updating the bankruptcy laws so people could be you know more than unsecured secured creditors and then punishing making sure to punish fraud and that as much as they can like with me like with made off that it, it took a long time but 80 percent i think like there's like an 80 percent recovery for their money back but hopefully you know you can you can modernize the laws and and uh regarding crypto so this is done you know uh much much faster than that i'll tell you what 80 percent of about uh, 30 billion dollars That'd be a big chunk of change. That's John Berlau, who's the Senior Fellow and Director of Finance Policy at Competitive Enterprise. John, it's always a pleasure. Coming up, your phone calls and your emails, and you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I have a dog in the fight here. I pay taxes in both the states of Oregon and in Washington, so when they start talking about the income tax kicker, you have to understand how this system works. Because I think voters were smart enough years ago, I think it was decades ago, to put it in the Constitution. Uh, To a certain extent, that means the legislature can't monkey around with it. But here's what happens. The state of Oregon gets revenue forecasts. Its legislature writes a budget. The governor signs the budget. And they say, this is the amount of money we need to run the state. And then if it turns out that the state collects more money than it expected to collect, and it goes over a certain percentage, then they have to kick the excess back to the taxpayers. Now, that's what's happening right now. There's a new revenue forecast out, and it now shows that there is going to be a gigantic income tax kicker. And of course, that makes some of us wonder, so what is a Democrat majority legislature with a Democrat governor going to do when there's a giant pile of money they think they may may be able to get their hands on? I've invited Jason Williams on, who's founder of the Taxpayer Association of Oregon, Jason, am I right that this will whet the chops of people like Tina Kotek and her Democrat friends in the legislature? It's already started to happen. The official state forecast next for next year, we're going to head into a recession. And the politicians, as they were hearing this news today, began asking questions about the kicker. Because 
there is going to be overcollected money returned back to taxpayers. It's about $3 billion. Many taxpayers are going to get a $900 refund because this is money that government accidentally overcollected because uh, revenue came in bigger than they, they had planned after they balanced the budget. So the politicians know next year they're heading into a recession. They're not going to get the money they want, but they're supposed to give out this $3 billion back to taxpayers from this year. They don't want to do that. I predict that they're either going to start doing some budget gimmicks to start taking $100 million or two or $300 million, or they might refer something to the people because the people put this law into the Constitution. So they have to ask voters permission to take it, unless they do some of this budget gimmicks. But this is, this is serious news. They're talking about a recession. You might want to be frugal this Christmas, and the politicians have been raising so many taxes they expect this to last forever, and it won't. And let me ask you this. I'm talking to Jason Williams from the Taxpayer Association. The actual numbers, the state expects now to collect almost $5 billion more than they were going to collect when they wrote the current budget back just last year. So it's $4.97 billion. And, and it, you said that the personal tax kicker will be somewhere around $3.7 billion, or about $1,737 for each individual Oregon income taxpayer. So heading into a recession, when people may be short of money, they're literally saying, well, the citizens will get this 1700 bucks back. Let's figure out a way to make sure that we keep it and don't give it back to people who are going to be suffering through a recession at that point. Yeah, we need it right now. We are, in fact, one of the things that's happened because of the recession that we've been dealing with currently is that there's been an explosion of people putting their money into credit cards again. They kind of paid it off during the, the pandemic. Now it's all going back. That's a bad sign. People need this kicker refund, which it might be $700 per person or 900 Some people are going to get more than a $1,000 refund. Um, but I want to let you know, government doesn't need the money. In a one decade, they doubled the size of the Oregon budget. That's crazy. Even this In year 10 alone, years, now hold on, yeah. let's do the math on that, Jason, yeah. because I, I ask people to remind themselves of this. If your personal budget doubled in a decade, that means you're spending twice as much. Yeah. And you say, well, that's 10% per year for 10 years, not, not counting compounding. Has, do you know of anybody who's had a 10% raise every year for the last 10 years? Maybe that cryptocurrency guy. Yeah, that's, that's, maybe, that's it. Maybe, maybe Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> Plus, doesn't the state have a massive amount of money right now in its cash reserves? I know when they got like 4 to $5 billion from the feds during COVID, they actually stashed a, over a billion dollars of that into a special slush fund. They may have taken a little bit of that out this year, but that is how much excess money that they had Last year, that they put a billion plus into a special slush fund. We haven't even got the money fully to spend for the infrastructure and all this other stuff. But yeah, and I want to remind people that this year alone, on the local ballot, over 50 taxes, local taxes have been passed. Over a billion dollars, it just in local taxes. So I already told you how the state budget doubled, uh, doubled in size in 10 years. At the local ballot, it's looking like to do the same. And now the politicians say, hey, we need extra money. Let's go after the people's kicker because people don't need a 700 or $900 check. 
during a recession. Okay, so Jason, what would it take for them to strip this out of the Constitution? Doesn't that take a fairly major move by both the legislature and maybe even asking the voters? I think what they would do, outside of these budget gimmicks that they can do to take a little bit of it, they would have to do a referral. I would, I would suggest or predict that they would do a referral to the voters saying, oh, uh, a one-time, let us take out a billion dollars so we can do, we can give it to poor people projects or build a bridge or something. They will probably do something like that uh, as a one-time thing. Um, and, uh, just, uh, I want people to think about this. If you're heading into economic bad times and the government says, well, we might have to give back $1,700 to every single taxpayer, or we could hang on to the money and spend it on a government that's already flush with cash that has doubled the size of its budget in just the last 10 years. Has your family budget doubled in the last 10 years? You got the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, Click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to ask you this. Has it ever occurred to you that many of the places and many of the institutions that claim themselves to be the most politically correct, the most woke, the most diverse and equitable and inclusive, that they tend to be the ones that are guilty of doing some of the worst things when it comes to, well, treating people differently because of the color of their skin, uh, the country they came from, the church or synagogue or mosque where they go and worship, uh, all of those things, that the very people who are always calling out everybody else are the ones who are most guilty in many cases of doing things that are bad in that very realm. It's what I think the psychology uh, community might call projection, where they accuse everybody else of doing the very thing that they've been doing. I think I've got a great example of that coming out of Seattle. And to talk about it, Laura D'Agostino joins me now, who's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Laura, welcome back to the show. Hi, yes, thank you so much. It's really a privilege to be here, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today. Well, I want you to tell this story, and I may actually murder the pronunciation of this man's name. Joshua, is it Dimert or Demert? Joshua Dimert. Dimert. Tell me who uh, who Joshua Dimert is and, and what has caused him to file a federal lawsuit against the city of Seattle and the mayor, Bruce Harrell. Absolutely. So Joshua Dimer is a former City of Seattle employee. He specifically worked within the Human Services Department, and uh, he has a background in government work. He's a devoted father, and he's really someone that has a heart for service. And one of the things that really attracted him about the Human Services Department was exactly that opportunity to work with Seattle's most marginalized population and to apply his technological skills to find ways to, that the city could provide their services in a efficient and uh, accessible way. All right. So where'd that all go wrong? Well, uh, shortly after Joshua started working for the city, he noticed that every aspect of his job was somehow being influenced by his racial identity. And by his racial identity, I mean that 
the city classified him as a white male. And so what that means is that Joshua has a very unique role within the city's race and social justice initiative. So you can think of it that this is sort of the foundation of everything the city does in the sense that whatever policy it puts together, whatever training it it organizes, it always views things within the lens of race. And so Mr. Dimert started to notice that the training he would attend, he was being coerced to join groups where he, they would say, you need to go meet with people of your race. And they call these caucuses. Now, hold he on. Also- Laura, 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 this sounds, sounds like, you know, uh, yeah, people like you, you, you sit in the back of the bus. People like you aren't allowed to sit and have lunch at this lunch counter or use that drinking fountain just to provide a few historic examples. That's what he's that's what they were doing with him, saying your kind has to go meet with your kind and you stay away from us. It, uh, unfortunately, I, it, it's shocking to, to read about all of these things. But, yes, that's exactly what the city does through these groups it calls caucuses. And so employees are encouraged by encouraged, I mean, coerced to really join these groups. And what they would do in their divided training is that the white caucus would identify all the ways that um, individuals who are Christians and white and European or from some type of privileged status, how they're responsible for most of the evils throughout history, whereas the um, other racial groups would focus on how they could strengthen uh, their, their relationship within the city, how they could advance their job opportunities. So there was even discriminatory messaging within these racial groups. And Mr. Deitmer, um, there's one very specific instance that I, I found especially egregious, was that there was, an oper- there was a chance where he was serving as a supervisor, Uh, They call it a lead role. And during that time, he was preparing to take FMLA leave because he was taking FMLA leave throughout that time frame. As as Family Medical Leave Act, just for everybody listening, the acronyms can get thick at times, even with attorneys. (laughs) Sorry about that. Yes, he, he was preparing to take leave because he deals with a chronic health issue. And his supervisor told him that he was being selfish by holding on to his supervisory job because... He was holding back people of color from being able to rise to his position. And after much coercion and a complete lack of support from um, HR, Mr. Deitmer ultimately resigned from that position. There were also other times that uh, he was called uh, a white supremacist just because he objected to what he saw as discrimination within the city. And there are, there are numerous other occasions as well that uh, we, we discovered emails where fellow co-workers were threatening violence against Mr. Deitmer because he dared offer a different opinion. So this quickly became it, not only a, a threatening environment, but one in which Mr. Deitmer could not escape the badge of inferiority that the city gave him just because of the color of his skin. Well, I'm talking to Laura D'Agostino, who is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. She's representing, in part, uh, Pacific Legal is representing Joshua Dimart, uh, who's a former City of Seattle employee filing a federal lawsuit against the city and Mayor Bruce Harrell. On multiple occasions, you say upper-level managers told him verbally, but not in writing, that other department, uh, and they were telling other department employees as well, if you've got a new position to fill, especially one that is a senior role or a lead role, you should fill that with a person of color, that, that he should l- literally deliberately discriminate in favor of somebody because of skin color? Yes, that, and he also was uh, part of meetings 
where uh, he he was listening to the city trying to organize efforts to do race-based layoffs. And so you can imagine how demeaning that felt for him, being a part of those di- discussions and hearing people and coworkers that you respect say things like, we have to find a way to promote, you know, X racial group or this racial group, and we have to find ways to, you know, uh, lay off uh, white men. And so he was privy to many discussions, and it, 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 it was shocking for him, and he tried his best to uh, preserve his job, but he was very vocal about the discrimination he faced, and not surprisingly, the city never did anything to truly remedy or address the problem. Well, Laura, I tell people all the time, and I'm not an attorney, but I do have three great employees. But even if I, if I told them one day, hey, you know what? We've got an opening. We're going to fill another producer position. I'm going to deliberately hire a person of color. Would that be legal for somebody like me to even say that out loud? Well, uh, employers are supposed to be individuals that or corporations that offer equal opportunity to all people and uh, discriminating against people on the basis of race, not only in the admission process and interview process, but also within a work environment is inherently against the law. And so that's why we're bringing not only an equal protection claim, because Mr. Joshua, Joshua Dimert was treated differently on the basis of his race, but it also violates Title VII, where you are supposed to be free from racial harassment in your work environment. Well, let's hope so. That's Laura D'Agostino, who's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Laura, it's a pleasure to have you on. Back in just a moment. And if I get a naysayer on this one, I'll be glad to put you right to the head of the line at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. I've got a question for you. Are you, as a citizen, not a serf, you are not a subject in some kind of royal government, Are you going to put up with the government telling you you will not be able to buy a gasoline or diesel car in about a decade or so? Because that is the threat that's being leveled, more so by the blue states in America than it is being leveled by people in the red states. But uh, just as an example, the state I live in, the state of Washington, about 11% of new cars being sold are electric cars. That means 89% of them are gasoline or diesel Um, And there's a relatively small number of electric vehicles that are registered statewide. California has a slightly higher level of electric car sales. And if people choose to buy those cars, if they could do it without tax incentives, without some kind of rebate from the federal government or the state government, I'd have no problem with it. Make whatever choice you want. Gasoline, diesel, electric, steam-powered, nuclear fusion-powered, if you can get your flux capacitor fixed, I'm okay with any of that, but it needs to be your choice. So the governor of the state I live in, Governor Jay Inslee, has said he's going to outdo even California. California has said that it will ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars starting in 2035, but that even before that, in just the next couple of years, California plans to limit the number of gasoline-powered cars by about 30% just in the next couple of years. A Washington state says, well, we're going to outdo that. Is This is a quote from Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington. Washington set in law a goal, a goal for all new car sales to be zero emissions by 2030, and we're ready to adopt California's regulations by the end of the year. They want all new car sales to be zero emissions. Well, there are a couple of problems with that. Number one, for an awful lot of people, electric cars do not fit the bill. 
They don't meet the needs of the people who want to drive them. And this isn't just a matter of getting used to a new kind of technology, the way people got used to a certain kind of cell phone, and then there were new cell phones, and they said, oh, no, I like my old cell phone. No, there are people out there who don't find an electric vehicle that will meet their needs. I mean, for some people, if they say, well, I drive five miles to work and I drive five miles home every day and and I never take long trips. Well, then in that case, it might actually make sense to have an electric vehicle. It might actually be more economical for you. Now, take out the subsidies as well, because I don't see any reason for the people in the United States who pay taxes to have to fund or subsidize your purchase of an electric car. If you think it's a superior car, by all means, buy it with your own money. But then comes the question that all of this is being sold under the idea that this is zero carbon, zero emissions. And that is just plain hogwash. I'll cite, for example, Mark Mills. Now, he's a guy who writes at what's called the Manhattan Institute. It's a big think tank that's a free market think tank, not conservative, not liberal, just for free markets. And they say, you've got some major problems here because they're not as good for the environment as people think. And I'll quote Mark Mills. He says, this isn't my data. It comes from Volkswagen and Volvo and the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. So Volkswagen and Volvo are two of the bigger electric car makers that are switching over to electric. He says, we know there's a lot of carbon dioxide emitted by making the batteries and the battery chemicals, so much so you cannot call them zero emissions vehicles. You can simply call them vehicles that emit somewhere else. He says, at best, electric cars are about 50% cleaner at the end of the day, but they're not completely clean transportation. And I'll point out one thing to you. If you're driving an electric car right now and that was your choice, uh, fine, uh, good for you, whatever floats your boat. But if you're saying my car doesn't put out any emissions, you have to know that across the United States, over 50% of electricity is produced with fossil fuels. So what Mills is saying is you're saying the tailpipe on my electric car doesn't produce any kind of exhaust. No, the exhaust is somewhere else. It's where they're burning natural gas or burning coal or burning some other kind of fuel. More than 50% of all electricity is produced with some kind of fossil fuel right now. And if you say, well, we're going to switch over in the next couple of years, it has taken decades to get to the point where wind and solar make up not quite 10% of the entire grid. If it's taken that long and taken that much in federal subsidies to get to that point, how long do you suppose it's going to be before you get to where 60% of electricity is made from wind and solar or about six times as much as we currently see? He also points this out. And this is a problem I've brought up time and again. It takes a long time to recharge an electric car. If you go to AAA and you say, what's the average fill-up with a gasoline or diesel vehicle? They said the average is seven minutes. That means some people may fuel up their cars in three minutes. And some people may take 10, but the average is seven. That's how averages work. It takes, on average, six times as long to fill up every electric car as it does a gasoline car. So what Mills says is, generally speaking, you will need five to six times more filling stations for electric cars. And that's only the first problem. The second problem is the electric power grid in America 
is not ready. And we're one of the most technologically capable countries in the world. He says for a complete switchover from fossil fuels to electricity, the electric grid will have to be roughly twice the size it is today. And nobody's planning to build it that big. So you can say, even if everybody could go out tomorrow and say, I'm trading in my old fossil fuel powered car for an electric car, the electricity isn't there. The stations aren't there. And it takes a long, long time. And you're going to have to have five or six times as many of those stations. Right now, if you pull up behind two other people who are about to fill their gas tanks, you might be in line as long as 15 minutes. If you pull up between behind two other people who are have an electric vehicle, it's going to take you as much as an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And does that work for most people? I don't think it does. Let's go to Dominic. Hey, Dominic, you saw Donald Trump's speech last night. I was impressed. I think he's going to run a great campaign. Tell me what you made of it. Hi, Lars. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, uh, I saw the speech. I was really impressed. I, I watched him, and uh, he was, you know, as they say, presidential and uh, completely on target. Didn't bring up the past. Uh, talked about the future. Yep. Um, he, he just did. impressed me. Every everything he did, and and I, and I was a Donald Trump fan, and now I I really am again because he seems to be the only candidate that can concentrate on what our country needs right now. Was there any major and, issue he did not touch on where you thought, "Wow, I wish he'd he'd hit on this or that"? Because I was I, I watch for not only what somebody says, but what they don't talk about as well, especially with Joe Biden. But did you did you see any major deficits in that? Um, I actually didn't. I was I was waiting for him not to cover certain things. But of course, it w- it wasn't a rally speech. It was a totally different speech. You know, I, I hear him's getting knocked around on the radio and TV for his speech. But I thought it was a very good speech. He covered, I think, everything I was concerned about in the time he had. I got to tell you something. I'm not going to knock him. If I find deficits in what he says, I'll be glad to call them out. And I made that promise before he ran or when he ran the last time around. And I was impressed. And when I thought I disagreed with him, I was glad to say so. Dominic, thanks a lot. I appreciate the phone call. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I'll do that in just a moment. But I want to talk a little bit about where Joe Biden is going to take his student loan repayment scam that he was running before the election. I suspect, and maybe I'll be told by my friend Grover Norquist that I'm wrong about this, but I think Joe made all these promises heading up to the election and figured once the election's over, I'll have a lot more flexibility like Obama did with Vladimir Putin back in the day. Uh, and, and I can just forget about all that stuff, like he's already forgotten about codifying Roe into federal law and things like that. Uh, Grover Norquist joins me now. How are you doing, sir? I am doing reasonably well. Just had a celebration of Republican mayors in Atlantic City, uh, where local government people are actually trying to keep taxes down. That's a, that's a very good goal. Let me ask you about those. My audience knows I don't like the debt repayment scam. I think it is a scam. I think offering to pay off the loans run or the debts run up by students who went out and got worthless degrees and found out, gee, 
Uh, there, there isn't a really high-paid job that comes with this degree, even though the degree costs a lot of money. Can I get somebody else, like somebody who's never gone to college, the average American taxpayer, 70% of them, can I get them to pay my bill instead? And Joe said, sure, I'll get that for you. Just vote, you know, vote Democrat when it comes to November. Well, November's, the, the election is over at this point. And now it sounds like uh, Joe Biden's plan has uh, has more than a few legal problems and isn't as likely to happen at all. Am I am I wrong in any of that? Um, you're right in just about all of it. Uh, it. It always had legal problems. It's, it's not they're new, not newly found legal problems. Nancy Pelosi, of all people, was telling her caucus, I'd like to help you, but the president can't do it uh, by executive order. It would take a change in law. The idea that the president could give away assets of the United States, a loan owned to the United States government, is nothing. That they could go around and say, we're canceling, throwing away, they're trashing that asset, right? And, and we're going to give it, uh, there's a debt of $5,000, I'm going to give it to somebody, give it to the person who borrowed the money, the $5,000. The president can't do that unilaterally, never could. Um, and he knew he was lying. But he was under tremendous pressure from the left, which said, we don't care if it's constitutional, do it. Um, and they've been going around in the left Democrat circles, telling everybody, they were meaning the congressmen and senators, they said, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And all of a sudden they went to the president and said, well, we've been lying to people, so now you've got to go lie to them so that we don't sound like we lied. And uh, if you do this, everyone will vote for you, and you'll win a big election, and then we'll just you know, pass a law that covers what you did. Problem is they lost the House. They lost. I mean, in all of the unhappiness we have about the Republicans not winning the House by a larger margin, if you're the D's, it's a lot of brave upper lip stuff going on where they go, "Oh yeah, we won." You what? Who runs the House? The Republicans <laughs> do. That is a huge change in the correlation of forces. Uh, well, you're only a little bit inside the castle, and we're outside the castle. Yes, yes, yes. We're inside the castle. You're outside used to be the other way around. Try and get us. Um, it, it is a huge, huge shift, and we should not forget what a big deal it is, because had they kept the House and the Senate, they might well have figured out a way to go in, in reconciliation and do this themselves. Grover, let me ask you a strategic question. Would it make sense if sure. the Republicans have their ducks in a row to say the Democrats, oh, you want to vote on paying off upwards of a trillion dollars in debt for kids who took out loans and now have decided they don't want to pay them back and they want somebody else to do it. Let's have that vote. You're going to lose the vote, but we're going to get you on the record as having voted in favor of giving away a trillion dollars, most of it from the 70% of Americans who've never sat in a college classroom, never had that opportunity, and now you're going to ask them to pay the bill, would it make sense to actually make them vote on it? Oh, I think it'd be a great idea um, to hold the vote and let them vote yes or no. Many of them have given speeches claiming to be for this by now. Uh, and the polling evidently shows that it's not popular, which is the numbers you put forward, suggest. Why would it be popular to tell something like 14 percent of the population um, you're going to not have to pay your debts? And by the way, everybody else in the country is going to pay those debts for you. Okay, that doesn't go away. It's still owned, owed by the it, it'll be owed by the United States government, and they have to raise taxes on everybody else. 
to pay for it someday. Uh, so, yes, I think it's the reason why they didn't vote on it is because somebody told them how unpopular it was. And I think it would be a great idea to have them go out and either vote no and say, well, we were lying and we said it was a good idea, just a political play, or, or they vote yes. And then average citizens go, oh, I get it. I know that you, you don't respect me. You are paying off the, the daughters of your major donors and sons. Well, it, the other day, within the last two days, Joe Biden has extended the COVID emergency into, I guess, April of next year. Is part of the reason for that extension because he wants to have the authority to say, well, since we can't pay off your loans, we'll just put them on pause for repayment, which, by the way, benefits some very wealthy people, doctors and lawyers and engineers and other people who get a pass on even paying the interest on the monies they owe that got them a very fat paycheck as a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Is that part of the strategy now, figuring we won't be able to wipe out the debt, but we can sure put it on pause for the next couple of years? Well, yes, and the emergency laws need to be completely looked at and rewritten. Some states have done some serious work in uh, where you have Republican legislators and the Democratic governor who's going crazy during this period. Uh, and they said, you know, if you can have an emergency, it can only last three months, and then the legislature has to vote to keep it going every month or so. Um, that really ends the abuse of this. If, if you had to go to Congress to extend, I understand there's an emergency. The president can do it for two weeks or something, and then Congress can come in and agree. But, you know, because you, know, you don't want to, you couldn't get Congress to come in and vote today. Uh, but the idea that the president alone can keep extending this, that's a very poorly written law. That should not happen. That needs to be fixed. I mean, that ought to be on the list of things. You, say, you want your debt ceiling raised? This law gets changed. And I think it'd be difficult for the president to fight that because it's such a good idea. And frankly, it's no skin off his nose now. He's not going to do that again. Um, but it would fix it for the next guy. I'm very big on fixing it for the next guy. Let the, the, let the jerk who's misusing it right now take a pass. <laughs> if we can fix it for the future. I'm talking to Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Well, that brings this up. Is it possible, even though the Democrats may have a Senate majority, House will be in the hands of the Republicans, say, okay, let's pass some sensible limits on the executive authority in emergencies, so sensible that if we get it out of the House, we're going to throw it at the Senate and have the, have the uh, Democrats vote down those sensible changes and say no to them or vote them through and land it on Joe Biden's desk? I think it's an extremely important idea. It's a good project. And, and there are two things. One of the things you can do, you could say to them, look, we want to do this. We can do it quietly without a lot of finger pointing. But if you fight us on it, then we'll have a long discussion about your abuses and what you're doing. The president could very easily, quietly say, I never use against this. This is a good <laughs> idea. I agree with you. you know, and, and not have to go, I'm an idiot. I misused power. Um, and I, I now recant before the American people all my sins. Uh, but you, you could say to them, you, said, you just sign the bill. We won't jump up and down and call your names. We just want to win. That's all. We want to change this rule. Absolutely. That's Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. Grover, it's always a pleasure. Back in a moment, I'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. Emails go to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I don't want you to think that I ever neglect our callers, so I'm going to get to callers here in a second. But let me tell you first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Valhalla Tea Company, a perfect gift for the holidays, helping veterans with every bag sold at ValhallaTea.com. That's ValhallaTea.com. Our Twitter poll today, will Governor Tina Kotek for Oregon be better, worse, or about the same as accidental Governor Kate Brown, who, thank God, is taking an exit in January, about the 9th of January or so. I've given you three options to vote, better, worse, or about the same. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Eric in Ferndale, which is about as north as you can go before you become one of the subjects of Mr. Trudeau. Um, Eric, welcome to the program. What's on your mind, sir? Uh. I usually agree pretty much most all the, you know, we're on the same page with stuff, but the Trump thing, I got to disagree. I don't know. I just don't see him winning again. Just too many people hate him. Even a bunch of Republicans hate him. So I just had to chime in and I'd like to well, see somebody else. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. People hated him in 2015 when he announced. They hated him when he got the nomination. They hated him when he got elected. In fact, they'd all declared it impossible. And then they hated on him for a good solid four years. Are you saying the hate is at an even higher level today than it was in the last basically six years? Yep, I am. Despite the fact that everything he promised to do, he did. Everything that was in the power, within the power of the presidency, he, he actually did. He did all the things he said he was going to do. And all of the things that he was called a liar on when he said Trump Tower was bugged by the FBI turned out to be true. When he said the Hunter Biden laptop showed the, you know, the, the, uh, the complicity of the Biden crime family turned out to be true. In other words, you go right down the list of all the things he was accused of being a Russian plant that he was in the White House at the behest of Vladimir Putin um, turned out not to yep. be true. So, so he did all the things he promised to do. He got America to a position before the pandemic where we had the lowest unemployment rate among every single demographic group. We had American prosperity. We had uh, abundant energy. We had low gas prices. We had full employment. Why would you not want that guy back in, in the position? Because people say, I don't like his style. I, I would. I didn't say I wouldn't. didn't want him back or wouldn't vote for him. I'm just saying there's... There's too many people that, you know, all you got to do is look at this last midterm election where a lot of Republicans, people expected to win, and they didn't. The, the people just hate him. I, I don't care what he, you know. Well, okay, Democrats, and you, and, and you could people. be right, Eric, although, do you, know, do you know what, you know, there are people who don't like what I say. There are even people who disagree with me, and you're disagreeing with me now, and that's okay. I don't have a problem with it. Do you know what rallies people to my side? more than almost anything else I can do on this radio show? Uh, no. When somebody attacks me, especially if the attack is not well-founded. Somebody calls me a liar, and they know I'm not. I mean, I had a guy an hour ago who said, you never asked Joe Kent about this side job that he had. After he got out of the military, he needed another job. He worked another job, and he talked about it on the show. A guy called me up and said, you never asked him about it. I said, we spent 10 minutes on the air before the election talking about that very subject. All of a sudden, I've got a, a boatload of emails from people saying, that guy was wrong. You didn't lie about that. He should be ashamed. You know, in other words, when people hate on Don Donald Trump, do you know what it does? For the liberals, they, they love to hate things. 
Um, but for conservatives who actually believe in doing what Donald Trump has suggested, you know, there will be other people who will run for the presidency. I think Donald Trump is the choice. And so do apparently about 60 to 70 percent of conservatives. Let's go to Steve in Federal Way. Hey, Steve, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on a Wednesday. What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for taking my call, Lars. Hey, I was, uh, I was listening to you earlier, and you are talking about electric cars. And uh, there's three things that kind of come to mind when it comes to all this energy stuff. But as far as the cars, um, there's talk right now all over the place about how all the mining for the lithium and all that stuff in the West Andes is causing a, 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 an environmental disaster. It is. Uh, and they're, they're not, that, and that was... That was the point the guy from the Manhattan Institute was making, Mr. Mills. He's saying, look, at, at the end of the day, after you have added up all the environmental harms of internal combustion and all the harms of the electric, it comes out maybe a little bit better. And it only works if you have massive subsidies and it comes with lots of practical problems as well. Let's go to uh, Ron in Salem. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Well, Lars, I just want to say the president gave a great speech he addressed every issue that was wrong, that we have gone away to America's last policies. The fentanyl and drugs coming from China, we ain't heard nothing. When he went, when Biden went to, went to the conference in the Pacific and it had Chi there, and uh, make long story short, Lars, I believe we need to get rid of the 1996 trade agreement and as a penalty. Because they're killing our people. They started with the Wuhan. It has economically, socially damaged our kids, our households, and everything else. And I believe also the Republican Party, in my opinion, as a PCP, I like to see Ronald McDaniel go down because she failed. Yep. McConnell and everybody else, and uh, I'm praying they that Kevin... They need to get off their butts and serve America first. Get the tax base built back up by bringing businesses back. Because you can't keep robbing out of the treasury and keep printing money. Otherwise, we'll have 18 to 22 percent house house payments. With my dad in 1970, had 14.8 percent by Ames Home Loans. It's absolutely crazy. Ron, thank you very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.